All right, guys, as always, I am here to promote my people, my favorite non-alcoholic wine, Drink Shirley. Drink Shirley is a non-alcoholic wine. They taste just like the real thing. They have a variety of different flavors, a variety of different bottles. I hear now that they're going to be like in store, so they're more accessible to you. But if you would like that in your life, if you're interested in not having a hangover or feeling bad from drinking or having the mental health side effects that come with drinking, um, go ahead and use my promo code currentcounseling at drinkshirley.com so you can get 15% off your purchase at checkout. Enjoy and cheers on me. everyone welcome back to current counseling yay yay we are here and yes becca recorded an episode ahead of time yay so technically you all be listening to this in the future yay yay becca we're becoming responsible and scheduling our podcast yay i'm so extra that was so unnecessary but what's up guys how we doing you know like we're out here i i you know, I was responsible this time. And I was like, you know what? I have some spare time this weekend. Let me go ahead and record some content ahead of time. So that way, when it comes down to the weekend, I'm supposed to post it. I'm not worried. I'm just either editing or posting like a normal person who is a content creator does. But you know what? I'm not a content creator. I'm a school counselor. I'm an educator. So we new to this. We chilling. And yeah, it's a vibe second cup of coffee for the day. Cheers, everyone. Cheers if you're listening to this in your car on the way to work. Cheers if you're vibing right now. Just cheers, whatever you're drinking. I also have a LaCroix on deck for later, you know? You gotta have, like, your coffee and a fun drink and some water. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't just have your coffee. At least, maybe I'm weird, but that's how it is for me. I gotta have my coffee and my fun drink and some regular water. So that, that's what we doing right now. Mm. You know the best coffee combo to me right now? And I totally stole this from Bernie Bean. They're a coffee shop here in Dallas. They're in downtown and they are amazing and I used to work for them. So shout out Bernie Bean. Um, but my favorite latte that they've ever shown me, I did not know coffee could taste this way until I mix the ingredients together, or they told me to mix these ingredients together. So it's pistachio syrup. Sounds weird already. I know. Pistachio syrup, honey, you drizzle the honey all around the cup, and uh, oat milk with two shots of espresso. That's what I'm drinking right now. It sounds weird. Trust me, it tastes fantastic. It's called the Be Happy Latte over at Bernie Bean. So. If you live in the Dallas area, you should definitely go check them out. But if you don't, make some at home. It's delicious. Mm. So yeah, guys, we are we are gonna get into it. We are talking asylums today, and I'm so excited to explore this topic. I have notes on it from like months ago. <laughs> so I'm really excited to get into it, you know, but um First, we're going to catch up on some life updates, you know, what's been going on with me, what's been going on at school. Well, you know, as a normal school, I'm, we're crushing it. We're crushing it at school. The kids are crushing it. I'm crushing it. My team's crushing it. Admin are crushing it. Teachers are crushing it. The entire school is crushing it. We're crushing the game. I'm no longer super, super stressed out as of now. As of right now, this moment, I am not super stressed out anymore like I used to be, which is a huge positive and great for my stress because girl mm, it's not fun to stress you know what i'm saying so um we're doing well in that area i went to a cross-country meet again this past weekend and i decided to because i saw a bunch of dogs there the last time i went i was like you know what let me bring the nugs 
Let me ring Nugget. And I'm staring at her right now because she's so cute and gorgeous and my favorite thing on this planet. So love her. And the kids loved her. And it was really, really cute to introduce them to my dog. Like, you know, worlds colliding. And it's just so sweet. Um, but they did great. They crushed it. Um, next week is district, if that means anything to anyone. It probably doesn't, but it means a lot to me. So we're going to go watch them, I think, next weekend. We'll see. Mm. So that's school updates. Um, it's spooky season. It's October and it is arguably my favorite time of the year. I love spooky season. I love me a good Halloween. I love me a good scary movie. I love me some good creepy films, some good creepy documentaries. Okay. I just love it all. I just watched something called The Watcher or Watcher and it's on Amazon Prime for rent. It was about like $4 or something. And I was like, should I? Whatever. I was bored. Y'all. And this kind of ties into the topic we're going to talk about today. It's just a little bit. So I'm kind of like satisfied with that. But um, so it's this, and I won't spoil it for you, but it's this film about this couple that moves to Romania for some reason. Um, okay. And they're there and, you know, the girl doesn't go to work because she's trying to like find herself. She's like an ex-actor actress and she's trying to find herself and her I guess husband or boyfriend or whatever he is I have feelings about him in a negative way and I won't I won't discuss it here so I don't ruin it anyways he goes off to work every day and so she's there by herself kind of like kicking it either uh kicking it at home drinking some coffee or going to explore Romania herself she starts to notice though this real raggedy greasy dude watching her through a window in his apartment into hers. First of all, immediately no. Immediately no. First of all, it's the first thing I'm gonna say. Second of all, when she tries to tell her hubby, boyfriend, whatever he is about this, he's like, no, like, I think you're imagining it. I think you're just, adjusting to a new culture, super condescending, and he doesn't believe her. Hmm. Okay. I see how it is. And if you watch the movie, you'll see how it ends up. Okay. And I wasn't too happy about that. But with all that to say, we're talking asylums today. And guess what? Women, as far as mental health went, or just for being themselves, were highly discriminated when it came to just shoving them in asylums. So we're going to talk a lot about that today and just asylums in general. Um, it's a little bit of spooky season. I don't know about y'all, but the only thing I knew about asylums before pulling them up, well, I knew a little bit more. I went to grad school for like counseling. But really, the only thing I kind of knew was what I saw in American Horror Story, the asylum season, second season, arguably one of the best ones, one of the scariest ones for sure. And so that kind of dramatized them a little bit, but a lot of it was like on the nose. It was kind of on the nose. Some of the stuff that went down in that show went down in asylums, okay? So we're gonna just get into that. I'm gonna pull up all my notes. We're gonna deep dive into the internet. I have my glasses off right now, so I'm, I'm blind. I can't see anything. <laughs> but so I'll be squinting and looking very close at my computer. Let's see. So yeah, guys, asylums. Um, I think mental health now in our society, and I've been talking about that, has a huge stigma around it. Like, okay, if you're mentally ill, you're crazy, right? You're psycho. Um, people use those words very loosely. And where does that come from? Like, if you really think about it at the end of the day, where does this come from? And I would say it comes from how asylums got to America back all the way back in the 1800s. First of all, ew. Whenever I think of the 1800s, I'm just like, ew. That would not be a good time, especially as a woman, to live in the 1800s. At all. Mm -mm. Anyways, so back in the 1800s, we got this idea basically from Europe because they had this new kind of wave of mental how to approach mental illness, and it was called moral treatment. So basically, we took that idea from Europe, 
um, to establish it here in America. I don't know how the Europeans were doing it, but apparently they were morally treating uh, patients who were mentally ill um, with asylums. So we're like, oh my gosh, fun. Let's do that here in America. Um, and before that, people who were deemed mentally ill actually just went to jail. So, and that's no surprise. Anyone who was different, anyone who was, you know, a, a tinge different, would just end up in jail. So we had no treatment facilities before the 1800s. Um, so like I said, there are people who are deemed, and I use that word deemed very strongly, people who are deemed mentally ill would just go to prison. Um, I say deemed because, girl, y'all, the way that they diagnose mental illnesses or what their idea of mental illnesses was back then was borderline hilarious okay very much so discriminatory towards like normal issues but we'll get into that anyways so the first asylum in america was built and i guess opened in the eight in 1814 and so people started to go, go into it but predominantly the individuals who would go into those um asylums were women immigrants who couldn't speak the language um, and the poor. So just let that sit and simmer for a minute. Immigrants who did not speak English were thrown into asylums because they thought they were delusional and crazy. Or they're just like, I can't understand you. So shoo shoo, go ahead. To say the least, America was very unhinged back then. But anyways, I digress. Um, so these individuals uh, were put in there wrongfully. I wrote down women were admitted for things, get this, like epilepsy, delayed menstruation, or not living up to patriarchal standards. I just, yeah. I just, every time I read that or every time I uh, think about that, it's not surprising, um, but you can kind of go back to that time and also think now in present why women are, you know, why people are sexist, why women are under men in a certain kind of way. They have been for centuries, just we couldn't ima imagine what women in the 1800s had to go through. Like literally, I would definitely be deemed insane back then. I'm too loud and too opinionated. Like, girl... I would like to think if I lived in the 1800s in a past life that I was like Jane Austen. She slayed. She was a savage. She never took a husband and just wrote novels that are iconic, by the way, but novels about falling in love with men, but never actually fell in love with a man and couldn't ever like never wanted anything to do with men. Um, icon slay. I love that. <laughs> I would like to think that that's how I would be only because I know that back in the 1800s, the men in that century period of time were absolutely unhinged and deplorable. So anyway, um, but yeah, so um, I want to tell a juicy story about a reporter named Nellie Bly. She um, was a woman who was a reporter back in 1887. And this is when a sane asylum started to really pop off negatively <laughs> this is when a lot of individuals started to get admitted and people were like what is going on in there because no one ever who was outside really knew what was happening inside everyone was like what is going on in there so Nellie Bly being the iconic woman she is was like you know what I'm gonna purposely get admitted so I could see what's going on This lady was like, I am on purpose going to act insane be so I can get inside an asylum. Can we just say queen main character energy? Like <laughs> that is absolutely unhinged, but I love it. And I love it for us and for the people um, living during that time so they could so things will get exposed. So things will get exposed so people could see the receipts of what is going on inside the insane asylums. So, okay, she acts insane. 
And, you know, within days, within hours, she is admitted into an insane asylum. So um, she went undercover for 10, for 10 days. She lived in the asylum. So she went undercover and lived in there for 10 days. She unearthed the poor treatment uh, patients endured as well as the poor living conditions, y'all. First of all, the people that were patients in asylums were treated not even like human. They were abused. Um, they weren't bathed, like they weren't taking baths or like there was no hygiene and they were like barely being fed like at all. Um, so if you can imagine like already people in there, a lot of them, a good majority of them didn't even have a mental condition, but I would imagine as time went on that they would develop one because <laughs> trauma, because scary, you know? So it kind of, in my opinion, had like a reverse effect. They're sending people there to get better, but you're actually making it worse. So yeah. Um, so she pretended to have amnesia to get committed to the asylum. So as I was kind of saying earlier, the mental illnesses or things they deem mental illness were things like amnesia. But now if you have amnesia, like because you hit your head or things like that, you're not deemed insane. It's just like, oh, like that's, that's normal. So like, just think about how far we've come because that's crazy. So she just pretended that she didn't know anyone or she couldn't remember anything. She was acting like crazy out in the streets and they're like, this woman is, she gotta go. Um, so she goes in there and uh, makes this article and there's speculation. So she makes this article and writes this book about what happened inside the asylums, kind of exposing, like I said, the unfair treatments that they, um, that they were exposed to and the lack of like resources or things that they need, um, in the asylums and their speculation. Like people are like, she completely made that up because whenever the inspectors would go visit and would be like, we're coming to go visit your asylum because clearly y'all aren't doing what you need to do. Everything would be clean. Everything would be prim. Everything, all the patients would be clean and prim as well. They would like interview them and they'd be like, no, this is the best place ever. So we can speculate, you know what I mean? Like we can just be like, there were no cell phones. There were no like, there was no Snapchat. There was, if, if that was me, I'd be like, like, you know, like, putting like the phone in my pocket or something so I could record what was going on. There was none of that. So it's not like it can really be proven, but like I kind of, I do believe that like there was a lot of unfair, disgusting treatment in asylums, especially because of the kinds of people that were sent there that weren't even mentally ill in the first place. So, and you know, people were not nice to anyone. Like I said, who was a little, little different or stepping outside of the patriarchy or societal norms. So it's like, why would they be nice to them in an asylum? Anyway, so Icon, that's Nellie Bly. I kind of want to buy her book and read it and um, see what's up with that and see what, what she like unpacked in there. So, okay, so her book is called 10 Days in a Madhouse and it caused a sensation, prompted the asylum to implement reforms and brought her lasting fame. So because of Nellie Bly being a boss, she... Um, and publishing that book, it actually caused asylums to reform their ways, which, you know, sometimes that's all it takes. And she would also publish her work, like in the newspaper under a pseudonym, pseudonym, um, I think with a male name. So no one would know it was a woman writing those things. Um, because back then no one wanted to read a book by a woman, man, people were so extra back then. It's like, Dang, a book is a book, no matter who wrote it. I can't. Anyway, super interesting stuff there. Um, another woman I kind of want to mention is a woman named Elizabeth Packard. She was admitted um, by her husband because she didn't. She did not share the same religious views as him. Let that settle. Let's just think about that for a second. Thank God we got into a place where people can like agree to disagree. And I mean, I'm not saying like in society because 
we're not there yet. Um, I'm saying like in relationships, like a lot of relationships now, they're very accepting of um, spiritual beliefs because I feel like now people are more like, I love you and I love you as a human. A spirituality is a part of you, but it's not everything about you. And I'm not gonna like disown you because you don't share the same spiritual beliefs as me. And I think that's beautiful. But back then, uh, clearly, you could be sent on, hey, this lady here, I can't with her anymore. She don't believe in uh, X, Y, Z. Get her on in, boys. Like, imagine, like, and you're a woman, you can't do anything about it. Like, you're just like, I guess. And I'm gonna Google what happened to her, cause what? happened to Elizabeth Packard. Ew. So it says, I guess she got out of the asylum and in her later years, Packard lived in California with one of her sons and his wife. She and her husband never divorced. Ew. But lived separately for the rest of their lives. Packard passed away in 1897. Y'all, she's like considered someone who is very... I guess they studied her a lot um, or not studied her, but like she's renowned for, I guess, what she's been through um, as a woman living in the, um, you know, in the 1800s and what the, she had to endure just for having different beliefs than her husband. And I want to I, I read an article where it kind of unveiled that more and I'm trying to find it. Jeez. So listen to this. In 1860, her husband committed Packard to the Illinois Hospital for the Insane. At the time, it was legal for a husband to have his wife committed. The law in Illinois stated that a man was entitled to due process, a hearing or trial to assess his sanity before being committed, but married women could be institutionalized at the request of their husbands without any evidence of mental health issues. Similar laws existed in many states across the country. I could never <laughs> count me out, count me out. Like if I lived a past life in the 1800s and I was a woman, good job, sis. Also shouts out to my ancestors cause honey, absolutely not. <laughs> like, <laughs> So Packard actually spent some time in an asylum when she was young. Um, and it says that her husband, aware that she had spent time in an asylum in her youth, he also began implying that her sanity was questionable. Not fair. Packard's religious beliefs were her greatest offense in her husband's view. Packard's religious exploration led her to adopt ideas from universalism, spiritualism, as well as to challenge Calvinistic or Calvinist doctrines. Both Packard and her husband opposed divorce. Her husband found it immoral and Packard rightfully feared losing custody of her younger children. Wow. So yeah, she's, and I'll put the link to this um, article in the um, description of this podcast, but how interesting y'all. She lived a pretty long life too for someone who um, was born in the 1800s, but the stuff that she had to go through, girl, and I'm sure that's just one story of what a woman in the 1800s had to go through. I know there's many more. So, um, man, she, uh, she's kind of a legend. Maybe I need to read a book on her too. And Nellie Bly. So now that we've talked about the 1800s of kind of, to put it loosely, mental health care, or lack thereof, um, really not treating much people with mental illness in the first place. Um, I wanted to kind of talk about before we get into lobotomies and shock therapy and things of that nature, what kind of things were deemed mental illness back then? Or like what were mental health disorders? Let's see. Mental health. So what I do know and what I did read in one of these articles was that, um, there was a lot of mental health issues centered around women. Like I said, um, women not getting their period would be de was deemed a mental illness. People just didn't understand, I guess, how the how women's 
bodies work? Like people just didn't understand. I'm guessing, I'm assuming because that sometimes happens, you know? And I think they targeted a lot of like teen girls who like didn't get their period, I guess, like right away. And like, those are late bloomers, honey, like relax. And they also, I think, targeted adult women who like had late periods because I guess in the man man brain, they're like, well, she's doing something wrong or she's doing it on purpose so she can hold her period in. Like they just didn't, they didn't get it. And I mean, yeah. (laughs) Okay, let's see. Asylum admission criteria in the 1800s. And it says... Asylum admission criteria in the 1800s means you might have qualified. Oh, I would have qualified because I'm super opinionated and I would have been deemed crazy because I would not be able to just be like, yes, husband. I could never send me to the asylum. It's okay. Um, Okay. It says other listed conditions or it says listed... mm, So it says listed conditions included mania, dementia, melancholy, relapsing mania, hysteria, epilepsy, and idiocy. So being an idiot? Like, what? Hold on. I'm going to look that up to make sure I don't sound stupid. Give me a second. (laughs) Idiocy. Meaning extremely stupid behavior all right i would be in there they're like this this woman right here she has extremely stupid behavior get her in (laughs) and not the what did they say epilepsy they really thought epilepsy which is no one can control that was like a mental illness which is crazy and they're like to the asylum for you even though you can't control that Okay, um, so, and dementia too, which I think is crazy. Like, you can't control that either, and it's, like, what? Mm. And, excuse me, and I'm sure the way or how they, like, what they use as a mean to diagnose you was, like, not official and very loose. So, let's see. So it says that this woman named Grace Anderson, she, um, it says the records show Grace suffered from dementia and spent 36 years in the lunatic asylum in Southwestern uh, Victoria, where she died. She had the occasional visit from her eldest son, was not very robust and kept on stimulants. Dang. So it says here that hysteria Um, is a 19th century word that might just mean great excitement. What complicates the figures is that you have a lot of people with temporary psychosis from alcohol. The alcohol that was sold in the the colonies, people in those days weren't drinking, weren't beer drinkers. They drank spirits, um, which was much stronger and was often alterated with narcotics. Okay. (laughs) That's crazy. So hysteria just meant great excitement back then. So we all we all would have been in the asylum guys together because I don't know about y'all, but I get excited for things. Practitioners believed, and there was also a huge shortage and like not too many mental health professionals back then. And obviously like their practices were like medieval for people who were trained to be mental health professionals. So they would just throw anyone in these asylums basically is what they're saying. But it says practitioners believe mental illness could be eliminated through eugenics. The study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. Jeez. Ew. So like very Darwin. Okay. They're just like, oh, well, these people should not be like making kids i guess man that's dark okay anyways although there were scientific advances particularly in neurology the tendency was to classify ailments rather than investigate through observation drugs such as chloroform um is it bromides or bromutes and 
ether were increasingly used to subdue patients. That's messed up. And we're going to talk about, like I said, lobotomies and shock therapy, but that wasn't until like the 1930s. So I guess kind of to almost wrap up the 1800s, um, it says here that because people were like protesting a lot and people were saying that insane asylums were very inhumane and there just weren't any interest for like humanity. Um, it says that, um, that they were forced into an uneasy truce resulting in medical standards for superintendents, greater control over asylums, oversight commissions, um, psychopathic hospitals for the acute outpatient care and research. Medical education began to include the study of insanity. The word asylum was replaced by hospital to reduce the stigma of mental illness. And this was back in like the 1880s interesting but yeah let's get in first let me crack open my LaCroix because we about to get into some juice so crisp mm. okay so I do also want to point out that it's kind of hard for me to find just what was considered a mental illness because I was reading and it said a lot of patients were um given or told that they had multiple kinds of mental illnesses when like modernly now they would just be considered one like bipolar disorder or um I don't know mm, depressive disorders anxiety like they would say you have like 10 mental illnesses and really it was just like one thing lots of symptoms that are one thing now modern wise um but back then it said that um this individual named Emile Crap Crap not Kraplin. I don't want to think it's that, but Kraplin, Kraplin. Um, they published a comprehensive system of psych psychological disorders that centered around a pattern of symptoms. So that was kind of, and that was in, um, around 1856 to 1926 um, that he published these things. And that kind of gave birth in a way to our modern DSM now, which um, the DSM is... It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And there have been five editions. Um, I would like to say we've come a long way. However, there are still some things that are kind of, mm, you know, and um, a big reason why uh, marginalized groups were um, stigmatized against mental health-wise is because there was not really... Um, inclusion of minority experiences in the DSM. And I don't want to say the DSM is perfect now, but it is a lot better than it used to be. Um, and up until like the 1970s, it says that homosexuality was included in the DSM as a psychological disorder, which is disgusting, messed up. So although... I feel like the DSM has a long way to go. Um, I feel like we've come a long way from like the 1800s and apparently the 1970s, which if you think about it, wasn't too long ago. So let that simmer for a second in our brains while I pull up some things about lobotomies and stuff like that. So if you're not familiar, a lobotomy is basically like, uh, it's gross. Um, they had like this long tool and i guess they sedated you i want to believe they sedated these people because but they took a long tool stuck it up your nose basically or into your eye let me look at the picture because oh yeah they well some of them some of them stuck it in the nose ew ew no i think it was actually in the eyeball so they stick it into like the corner of your eye and just like pickaxed at it. And apparently, I guess they're supposed to squirm around in your brain a little bit so that um, you can not be mentally ill anymore. Yeah. Anyways, I'm glad we don't do that anymore. And then they had like these propaganda pictures of like, I'm looking at them right now and I'll post some on the video, but like, before and afters of like people that basically got before they got the lobotomy and after, I think. Yup. So I'm looking at this woman and the 
title says an ice pick to the brain, the horror of frontal lobotomy. But basically it shows like this woman who's really upset on one side, I guess, before the lobotomy. And then on the other side, it shows like a normal looking woman, same woman that looks happier after the lobotomy. So much controversy around lobotomies. Um, very, in my opinion, inhumane. And I don't know who came up with that, but like, I guess. Um, so the intended effect that lobotomies are supposed to have is reduced tension or agitation. Um, it says, and many early patients did exhibit those changes. However, many also showed other effects such as apathy, passivity, lack of initiative, poor ability to concentrate, and a generally decreased depth and intensity of their emotional response to life. Wow. So it, I guess it did work for some people. But like at what cost, you know? Um, let's see. So someone won the Nobel Prize for inventing lobotomy. And the operation peaked in popularity around the same time. But from the mid-1950s, it rapidly fell out of favor, partly because of poor results and partly because of the introduction of first wave of effective psych psychiatric drugs. So instead of ice picking someone's eyeball and brain and scratching around in there, um, I guess pharmaceutical drugs started to become more of a thing. Um, so instead of mutilating someone, I guess, they were like, let's go ahead and just prescribe them some drugs. Okay. Which to me sits better with my spirit. Why go through all the when you can just, here's a pill, you know? Um, we never banned a lobotomy. So it says the U.S. and much of Western Europe never banned lobotomy. And the procedure was still performed in these places throughout the 1980s. Today, lobotomies are rarely performed, although they're technically still legal. So, and I, someone was telling me that there were, there's this group of people who have a documentary and I don't know what it's called, but that basically got lobotomies and like they love their life now. So, and it's pretty modern. It was like made in the 1990s. So, I mean, live your best life, queen. It just looks invasive and scary. That's all I'm going to say. But yeah, so they would use lobotomies as a means to treat patients and they would also use shock therapy which was introduced in the 1930s so shock therapy so electroconvulsive therapy is used to treat patients with certain types of mental illness including severe depression severe mania and catatonia it was first developed in the late 1930s with the first recorded treatments at McLean Hospital taking place in 1941. Um, it says the procedure was done ge under general anesthesia in which small electric circuits are passed through the brain, intentionally triggering a brief seizure. Um, it seemed to cause changes in brain chemistry that can quickly reverse symptoms of certain mental conditions. It said the use of shock therapy declined in the 1960s and 1970s, but revived starting in the early 1980s. During the years since, there have been a growing number of positive portrayals, often in patient memoirs. Wow. See, I didn't even know that. I was like, this is so cruel. This is awful. But maybe some of these things like actually do help people, unless the internet's lying to me, which I wouldn't doubt. Um... Maybe I should get electroshock therapy. Oops. I would imagine back then it wasn't like it is now, though. Wow, the more you know, guys. So it's really not that bad, I guess. Wow, I'm like breaking down barriers for myself right now because like I said, the only thing I kind of knew about asylums was what I've seen on American Horror Story. And mind you, you know, um, these things, like I said, the internet could be lying to me. Or like I said, modern technology now is so much better than it was back then. So I would imagine it wasn't super pleasant for maybe individuals who 
were in asylums. I want to believe that. Um, ew. Here we go. This is what I wanted. The history of inhumane mental health treatments. So here it reads, the purpose of the earliest mental institutions was neither treatment nor cure, but rather the enforced segregation of inmates from society. Facts. This one says, oh, so here's an account from uh, Bly, the one who went undercover into the asylum. She was committed without much of an examination to determine her sanity, but the conditions were harsh, cruel, and inhumane. One of the patients said, for crying, the nurse beat me with a broom handle and jumped on me. Then tie they tied my feet, my hands and feet, and throwing a sheet over my head, twisted it tightly around my throat so I could not scream, and thus put me in a bathtub filled with cold water. They held me under until I gave up every hope and became senseless. Hydrotherapy proved to be a popular technique. Warm, or more commonly, cold water allegedly reduced agitation, particularly for those experiencing manic episodes. People were either submerged in a bath for hours at a time, mummified in a wrapped pack, or sprayed with a deluge of shockingly cold water in showers. That sounds miserable. Asylums also relied heavily on mechanical restraints, using straitjackets, mechanicals, waistcoats, and leather wristlets, sometimes for hours or days at a time. Doctors claimed restraints kept patients safe, but as asylums filled up, the use of physical restraint was more a means of controlling overcrowded institutions. Awful. I like this point. It says, Benjamin Rush, who cons who's considered to be the father of American psychiatry, was first to abandon the theory that demon possession caused insanity. This didn't stop him from using old humoral treatments on asylum patients to cure their minds. I feel like culturally, sometimes um, there are certain cultures, and I'm saying this because in Hispanic culture sometimes, especially like in the deep Catholic culture, a lot of individuals um, mistaken you know, mental illness with like being possessed or like having a demon in you. So I've heard of that a lot where like youth are basically exercised and it's really traumatic because they're depressed or they have a lot of anxiety, which is really scary. But so that kind of hasn't gone away in some cultures. Um, let's see. Instead of letting out demons, as the treatment was originally intended, he thought the body's fluids were out of balance. As such, he purged, blistered, vomited, and bled his patients. Okay. All right. That's dark. Gross. Ooh, Henry Cotton, superintendent at New Jersey's Trenton State Hospital from 1907 to 1930, thought infected body parts of the body led to mental illness. He focused on pulling rotting teeth, which he thought caused madness-inducing infections. When that didn't work, presumably because contaminated saliva still made its way into the body, Cotton began removing tonsils as well. Okay, that's a little weird. And then he took it a step further, removing parts of stomachs, small intestines, appendixes, gallbladders, thyroid glands, and particularly, particularly parts of the colon, any place where it was thought infection could linger. Unsurprisingly, this did not prove to be a reliable cure and carried a high morality rate. Okay. Okay, now we're getting into it. Inspired by the discovery that high fevers help stop the symptoms of advanced syphilis, Julius Wagner Jureg experimented by, with including fevers in people with schizophrenia by injecting them with malaria-infected blood. This popular method even earned him the 1927 Nobel Prize. Okay. All right, then. That's weird. So it had a high morality rate. About 15% of patients treated with Wagner 
Jareg's fever cure died from the procedure. Mm, okay. Anyway. So this one says insulin shock therapy injection injected high levels of insulin to patients to cause convulsions and a coma. After several hours, the living dead would be revived from the coma and thought cured of their madness. This process would be repeated daily for months at a time with doctors sometimes administering as many as 50 to 60 treatments per patient. Oh my gosh, that is so unhinged. However, the procedure was obviously risky and caused amnesia. Yeah. Nevertheless, the treatment proved popular based on a questionable success rate. What the heck? So it says, by 1941, according to a U.S. public health survey, 72% of the country's uh, 305 reporting public and private asylums were using insulin coma therapy, not only for schizophrenia, but also for other types of madness. Another shock therapy was yet to come. Uh, metrazole shock therapy, like insulin, worked on the mistaken premise that epilepsy and schizophrenia couldn't exist at the same time. The key? Seizures. Laszlo von Meduna, a Hungarian physician discovered that the drug metrazole could produce seizure-like convulsions in patients, therefore shocking their brains out of a mental illness. It proved to be a shock physically as well. Metrazole also provoked thrashing convulsions so violent they could become quite literally backbreaking. In 1939, an x-ray study at the New York State Psychiatric Institute found that 43% of the patients who underwent metrazole convulsive therapy experienced fractures in their vertebrae. Oh my gosh. You get blown up and you go unconscious like something boils up. Describe one patient of treatment. I felt every time I took that as if I was going to die. Let's see. Buzzbox shock factory power cocktail stun shop and penicillin of psychiatry. One of the most infamous treatments for mental illness included electroconvulsive shock therapy. Types of non-convulsive shock therapy can be traced back as early as 1st century AD when according to De Young, headaches of the Roman emperor Claudius were treated by the application of a torpedo fish, better known as an electric ray on his forehead. Interesting. But their heyday and treating mental illnesses began in 1938. ECT carried less risk of fracture than metrazole shock therapy, and with the use of anesthetics and muscle relaxers in later years, the fracture rate became negligible. It wasn't without side effects, however, including amnesia, as well as increased suicidal tendencies. Ernest Hemingway, for example, died by suicide shortly after an, an ECT treatment. Interesting. ECT was a welcome replacement for metrazole therapy, writes Liberman. Depressed patients in particular often showed dramatic improvements in mood after just a few sessions. And while there were still some side effects to ECT, they were nothing compared to the daunting risk of coma therapy, malaria therapy, or lobotomies. It was truly a miracle treatment. And it looks like they're still using um, electric, electric shock therapy now. Obviously, probably has come a long way. And it sounds like it's helpful to some people, but back then, girl, mm-mm. Lobotomies. Around the same time, doctor, doctors overseas performed the first lobotomies. The practice was brought to the United States thanks to Walter Freeman, who began experimenting with lobotomies in the mid-1940s, which required damaging neural connections in the prefrontal cortex area of the brain thought to cause mental illness. I wonder who, like, the first patient of a lobotomy in the United States was. Like, what did they, what did they say, like, to this person? Like, hey, never done this before. Don't know how it's going to go. Don't know if your brain's going to be, like... Uh, sunny side up egg after this, but hey, would you like to go ahead and help me out by being basically a lab rat for me? Like, what was the thought process of this patient? Like, go off, sis. Okay. I'd be like, 
No. Respectfully, no. Right? Like, or I wonder if they force someone to do it. But let's read on. The behaviors doctors were trying to fix, they thought were set down in neurological connections. Let's see. The idea was if you could damage those connections, you could stop the bad behaviors. Um, The problem was lobotomies didn't just stop bad behaviors. They damaged people's memories and personalities, which even Freeman admitted every patient probably loses something by this operation, some spontaneity, some sparkle, some flavor of the personality. According to DeYoung, despite the side effects, by the time Freeman died in 1972, approximately 50,000 lobotomies had been performed on U.S. patients, mostly in asylums. However, less than 350 lobotomies were performed per year in the 1970s. By then, medication-dominated mental health treatment. Interesting. Well, guys, I think we learned a lot today about, you know, how far we've come mental health-wise, mental health awareness-wise, how we help the mentally ill. I think it's crazy to look back at how women were treated, how um, immigrants were treated, how um, the disabled were treated, and um, how people were just thrown willy-nilly into asylums if they were even a little different or had different opinions or even got a little bit too excited or acted like a quote-unquote idiot. Um, I think I want to say we would all be in an, in an asylum, especially if you are a woman. Probably would have, in the 1800s, been thrown in there. Um, I'm glad that's not the case anymore. Um, although we still very much so have a lot of work to do in the mental health field. Um, still have a lot of work to do with the DSM, for sure. Um, there's still some things in there that I'm like, mm, no. Um I would say we've come a long way. And I would say, um, you know, I'm glad asylums are done and we're over it. And we're not, you know, not to say that 100% of um, people who are in mental health care are treating their patients 100% humanely. But I am saying I hope and pray that it's way less common than it was back then in the 1800s. So... Yeah, guys, thank you for sitting here with me. Thanks for chatting with me. Next episode, we have a very exciting podcast. I am going to be going to Austin to speak with my friend Sam Black, who owns Austin Transplants, and we will be doing a cute little vlog where I pick out some plants at her shop, and we're going to sit down and have a little chit-chat session with each other, and I am so, so excited for that, y'all. So stay tuned for that. As always, thank you all so much for listening. Um, go do something fun. It's October. It's spooky season. And I hope you all enjoyed the cast and I will see you all later. Thanks guys so much. Bye.